0: Hello there, this is the Tall Tale Writer, and today I have an episode on mental illness, especially for teens. This is a part of a multiple episode series that goes in depth into the issue. This is meant to be more of a discussion starter than an opinion piece as well. Today we're going to look at the most common mental health issues that affect teens today. Most of these include anxiety, depression, stress, ADHD, OCD, and eating disorders. So let's start by looking at the most common stats and facts on depression. Approximately 8% of children between the ages of 12 and 17 have had a major depressive episode during the past year, according to SAMHSA's National Survey on Drug Use and Health. Girls are more likely to experience depression than boys. And there are four main types of depression. About half of all teens who meet the criteria for depression report that their symptoms severely impacted social academic life. Doctors do claim that depression is usually quite treatable, and sometimes therapy alone is helpful, and sometimes a combination of therapy and medication can offer the best symptom relief. However, it is known that if it is left untreated, depression can get worse. The next one is anxiety. Approximately 32% of teens between the ages of 13 and 18 have an anxiety disorder, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Although anxiety is considered treatable, only 18% of the 32 receive treatment. Anxiety can severely impact a teen's life as well. It often interferes with the teen's ability to socialize with friends, and it can interfere with the teen's education. It often is the most overlooked disorder as well. Severe cases of anxiety can prevent a teen from leaving his or her house, period. There are many different types of anxiety disorders, including generalized anxiety disorder, PTSD, social anxiety disorder, OCD, and phobias. Generalized anxiety, for example, can cause a teen to feel anxious in all areas of life, but social anxiety disorder may make it difficult for teens to speak up in class or attend social events. Talk therapy is usually the most preferred form of treatment for anxiety. Teens may benefit from learning skills to manage the symptoms and face the fears as well. The next, the next one is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD. Approximately 11% of children between the ages of 4 and 17 have been diagnosed with ADHD according to Centers of Disease Control and Prevention. Symptoms of ADHD may become apparent by age 4, but sometimes those symptoms don't become problematic until the teen years. Children may not experience academic problems until the work becomes difficult, and that time is usually during the high school years. There are two different subtypes of ADHD. There's a hyperactive type or the inattentive type. It's also possible to have a combination of both types. Teens with the hyperactive type usually have a difficulty sitting still and can't stop talking and struggle to complete a project. Teens with the inattentive type tend to lack focus and become easily distracted. ADHD is often treated with both therapy and medication, but parent training may also be part of the treatment to help manage family symptoms in the home. The next one is eating disorders. Eating disorders include anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder as well. Among teens between the ages of 13 and 18, approximately 2.7% suffer from eating disorder, according to the National Institute of Mental Health. Although eating disorders can occur in both males and females, the prevalence is much higher in females. While anorexia is characterized by extreme food restriction and weight loss, bulimia involves binge eating and purging, either by vomiting or through the use of laxatives. Binge eating disorder involves massive quantities of food at one time without purging. Eating disorders can take a serious toll on teens' physical health, and treatment often requires both physical health monitoring and intensive therapy. So what is the result of all of these mental health problems that starting to arise? All these problems that are finally being seen as a problem? Well, the result is a suicide crisis in America. Uh, We are living in a decade with the highest amount of suicide rates in the U.S. and it isn't getting lower. One of the highest marks we have seen is in 2017, which was led by a sharp increase in suicide of older teenage boys. Overall in general, according to the World Health Organization stats of 2019, U.S. is ranked number 27 with a rate of 15.3 suicides per 100,000 people. Demographically, though, not everyone is affected the same. Boys slash men tend to have higher suicide rates than girls slash women. As for ethnic groups, the CDC reports that whites have the highest suicide rate, followed by by American Indians slash Alaska Natives, then African Americans, and then Asians and Pacific Islanders. One of the most shocking aspects of the whole issue is how many parents are oblivious to the struggles that many of the children are facing. About half the parents of youth who thought of killing themselves had no idea, and 75% of parents of adolescents who often thought about death were also oblivious to their children's thoughts. So now we're going to go more in-depth into the theories about what's causing all these crises and mental illnesses in the U.S. So obviously, there is no clear-cut or universal answer. However, there are more theories coming out about what's causing and making these crises in teens and young adults. The most commonly talked about one today is the social media use. One of the biggest differences of the lives today between today's teenagers and people from a long time ago is how often they connected with different people and how often they spend time spending face-to-face talking to one another. Today, we find that most teenagers are using social media and technology, which does take away time from not only family, but spending time talking to one another face-to-face and we are starting to see complications of it. A study from last year had a national sample of young adults ages between 19 and 32 that showed a correlation between time spent in social media and perceived social isolation, also known as PSI. However, the authors noted that directionality can't be determined. That is the question saying, do people feeling socially isolated spend more time on social media or do more intense users develop perceived social isolation? And it is a good question. However, they did see a difference in the progression of an already-existent depression in another study with with just teenage girls. They found that girls who were heavy users of social media, but still kept the healthy balance of face-to-face interaction, did not see progression in their depression symptoms. Girls who became more engulfed in social media than having more face-to-face interactions did see worsening symptoms. So just based off that study, there are definitely a link between isolation due to technology and depression. Um, otherwise, they have also found self-esteem, especially in girls, to be one of the culprits of depression, and social media plays a big role in it since it lets kids compare themselves negatively to each other, and otherwise sometimes impossibly show um, achievable standards that are just not, it's not possible to ever get, especially in beauty travel or accomplishments. Um, many researchers and psychologists also believe that social media plays a big role in the increase of suicide rates. According to an article in the Los Angeles Times, youth suicide trends do not align well with economic explanations or with public traumas like school shootings or terrorist attacks. However, smartphone and social media use have become overused, and there's a fundamental shift in the way teens spend their leisure time. Activities that benefit mental health include sleep and face-to-face interaction with family and friends, and that has declined as American youths have to deepen their engagement with digital media. So it's interesting to think about how times have changed and the way we interact with one another can affect the way we think. We really weren't made to be in isolation, and it shows that humans crave emotional and physical intimacy. Besides that, we also have um, medical. We have a medical theory towards mental illness. So these are very basic. These include genetics, such as heredity, Mental illnesses sometimes run in families, which suggests that people who have family members with a mental illness may be somewhat more likely to develop one themselves. Susceptibility is passed on in families through genes, and experts believe that mental illnesses are linked to abnormalities in many genes rather than just one or a few. Another one is infections. Common and certain infections have been linked to brain damage and the development of mental illness and the worsening of its symptoms. Um, Brain defects or injuries are also very common in developing mental illness. And then, of course, there's external factors. External factors include um, drug use. Drug use can cause anxiety, depression, and paranoia. And sometimes drugs are used to cover up or to self-medicate against anxiety, depression, and paranoia. Then there's actual real physical abuse. Anything that's done at home, uh, physical, verbal, and even taps into bullying. Um, which this day and age is also connected to social media since most bullying does happen on social media. We also see another external factors such as poor nutrition. Uh, there has been a lot of research done on how poor nutrition can impact the brain. Um, usually, not always, but usually people are missing certain vitamins and nutrients like omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin D, vitamin B, vitamin B complex, folate, zinc, iodine, and selenium. Especially magnesium and folate. I found a study showing how people with low folate levels have only 7% response to treatment with antidepressants compared to those with high folate levels in their blood that have response to 44%. So, if you are on antidepressants, it's probably much better to be on folate um, in order for the present to work much better on the body. As for magnesium, almost half of Americans are deficient in it, and that's due to our poor diet. Magnesium was usually used as an original stress reliever pill, uh, apparently still is, and apparently you could still get it at a store as a powder and mix it into your water. Another common external factor of mental illness is toxins. Um, toxins such as pesticides. Research shows um, how pesticide exposure can lead to depression, anxiety, and psychiatric disorders. Uh, the most typical source of pesticide exposure for the average american is conventionally grown food they put on their plates daily and there's also heavy metals the main culprits for heavy metals tend to be mercury lead and arsenic and exposure to these metals are known to cause anxiety and depression and like you can trace the origins of these particular toxins usually to like industrial factories dental amalgams welding equipment cigarette smoke and and just old water pipes well, uh, heavy, metal to- heavy metal toxicity can usually disturb your brain chemistry, and that's the reason why it does cause these issues like depression and anxiety. also is known to weaken the immune system. And I also decided that to include the debate about vaccines, um, mostly because it's such a big part of our culture today, and the big debate as to whether kids should or at least should be mandatory to get it. Well, some people believe that vaccines given to young children can injure their brain. And this is all up to debate and perception, of course. depends on the teen and the parent as well, whatever they think is best. However, there is no doubt that there is chemicals and metal, metal additives to these vaccines. It is made to the public, to American citizens, on the CDC website. There are chemicals on that website that show formaldehyde, aluminum hydroxide, polysorbate 80, latex or latex, mercury in the form of thermosal and deoxycholate. I couldn't pronounce that one, but it's one of the many chemicals that is considered one of the most toxic. Although CDC claims that these ingredients are not harmful in the vaccine, there are several separate research papers done on each chemical listed, and some chemicals listed do show to be hazard when isolated. Some of the warning statements in the intake of certain chemicals claim that some can cause seizures, permanent brain damage, and can be a thyroid-slash-autoimmune disruptor. One study done, aluminum hydroxide, which is a common additive in many vaccines, has been proven to lead to motor deficits and motor neuron degeneration. Once again, this study is made public um, on the NCBI.org website. And, of course, it's up to perception to the adult whether they believe this is right or not. Um, however, one thing that did make sense to me is the reason saying that some children will never be affected by the vaccine because their body can properly remove chemicals and additives. But some people's bodies cannot do that, and they have a tougher time doing that. And over time, accumulates in their body just like any other chemical. Today, we've seen grown people getting affected by small additives in everyday things, like the BPA in their plastics and pesticides in their foods. Children are more vulnerable and likely to get poisoned due to their size, and plus genetics play a big role on how people naturally detox their bodies. So besides the whole um, vaccine debate, there's also prescription drugs. Prescription drugs are very well known to sometimes cause hormone disruptions, and sometimes they alter the brain chemistry. So some sort of medications are known to trigger depressive symptoms in others.